West Hills Friends is a Quaker meeting in Portland, Oregon. You can find more information about us at westhillsfriends.org. Last week, my mom sent me a text that said, I am needing to step away from social media for a few weeks. I just want you to know. I replied, want to talk about it? My phone rang the next second. When I picked up, I asked her what was going on. I asked her for some more specifics. She noted how hard it was for her to be on social media with everything that's going on. And when I asked her even more, I noticed her tone changed a bit. Well, she said, as a mother, I hate that it seems like my family is coming apart. This conversation was going in a direction I had not anticipated. What I came to find out was that earlier that day, my brother, who was three years younger than I am, came to her house in a rage. Over the last day, he had been reading my posts on Facebook following the murder of George Floyd. Additionally, my stepsister, our youngest sibling, was also speaking out publicly about George's murder. My other stepsister, who is about his age, was liking both my posts and my sister's posts. When he arrived at my mother's house, he said to her, the next time Mark comes home, and for those of you who don't know, my entire family lives 3,000 miles away on the East Coast, I am not going to be around. I'm going to the mountains, and I'll come back once he goes to back to Portland. I don't want to see him anymore. I don't want to talk to him anymore. This week, as I sat down to listen to Spirit about what to say this morning, I decided to just check real quick what our Christian brothers and sisters who use the lectionary will be talking about this week. As it turns out, the gospel text for this week is Matthew 10, 24 through 39. The climax of this passage are verses 34 through 36, which read, Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. I thought, oh boy, oh my, wow. (laughs) Go ahead and just drag me right into this, why don't you, Spirit? Honestly, this is one of those passages that I wish I didn't have to contend with in the Bible. It really seems to fly against my current understanding of Jesus. Jesus, the peacemaker. Jesus, the lover. And then we have the gospel writers saying, this came out of Jesus's mouth. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I can hear the echoes of the debates had in my Christian ethics class 
as the pacifists clashed with the just war theorists. These words used as the period to the dismissal of a pacifist theology. Frankly, I almost decided just to ignore this text again this week. It just felt too close to what was going on for me right now to wrestle with it in a way that didn't bring up the hurt of the things that my brother said about our relationship. I didn't want to read those words and feel justified. I didn't want to say, well, Jesus said this would happen, so, oh well, bye, brother. I went to the biblical scholars on this one, mainly with my discomfort with the incompatible vision I have of Jesus and this puzzling line about not coming to bring peace. The word that Matthew uses in this passage is the verb daichazo, which means divide, but more specifically entails splitting something in two, like one might do with a sword. Matthew doesn't use the same word when describing what happens in the garden when a disciple draws his sword to cut off the ear of a servant. In that text, he uses the actual word for sword, which is macharia. It is also worth noting that in the gospel account of Luke, that he also uses a word that is translated into divided. So both Matthew and Luke are telling us that Jesus is saying, I did not come to bring peace, but division. Not that this helped resolve anything in the moment for me. It still doesn't sound like the peace-loving Jesus that I know and love. So what is it about this division piece? Throughout the Old Testament, we read about people who maintained peace with God via sacrifice. The gods in the ancient Near East, they needed to be constantly appeased. Not adequately appeasing the gods could bring their wrath upon you, your family, your city, or country. This is where the concept of the scapegoat came from. The sins and wrongdoings of humans would be put on the sacrificial goat, which would be slain in order to satiate a wrathful god. This narrative, for many Christians, carries itself through all the way up to the sacrifice of Jesus. For those of us who have grown up in the evangelical tradition, we understood the crucifixion of Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And that is the reason we no longer need to atone for our sins with animal sacrifices. I've had to wrestle with this understanding of the end of Jesus' life for the last 15 years. I have moved away from this atonement understanding of the crucifixion and have really begun to see the crucifixion as Jesus thumbing his nose at the principalities and powers who believe that peace and the land would be achieved by silencing him with the ultimate tool at their disposal, lynching. In this way, Jesus exposes the lie of the scapegoat, that harmony, peace, and order depends on us ridding the problem by execution. We live in the legacy of that prophetic act. 
while simultaneously living in a world that still believes in the effectiveness of the scapegoat. Following the way of Jesus means that we are daily confronting the pervasive messages of this culture, that the reason we do not have harmony in the world is because of, quote, those people. We can see the ugly and evil way that understanding has played itself out throughout history. As almost all genocides have at their root an understanding that if only these people were gone, things would be better for us. But this understanding also bleeds into our interpersonal relationships, and often, most poignantly, in our most intimate of relationships, those of our families. This is where this is coming full circle for me, and is helping me read Jesus's words about not bringing peace, but division in a new light. If we are to follow the way of Jesus in rejecting the idea that at the heart of maintaining healthy relationships is having a clear stance, a clear sense of who stands in the way of it, then that which was held, has held together many of our intimate relationships will crumble. And we will suddenly find ourselves in new and difficult territory with those we love the most. Raymond Schwager, the Swiss theologian, said it this way, because of the many texts about love and peace, these words should not be understood as if dissension was the goal of Jesus's message. They could merely mean that his coming unintentionally and yet necessarily kindles dissension. The real cause of the division is therefore not to be found in him but his coming uncovers the deep-seated tensions already present and thus provokes open enmities. He seems like a sword and a troublemaker because he unmasks as delusionary the, the familiar forms of human harmony. Even the most natural and intimate interpersonal relations cannot stand in his presence he unveils secret discords. For my brother, what has been exposed over the last few weeks is that the health of our relationship no longer depends on a clear sense of who our enemies are. In fact, for him, I may have now associated myself with the enemy for whom we used to have in common. This, I hope, does not turn into a message supporting a common sentiment I see being shared right now, that we should not be speaking in ways that call out the forces that are at the center of our current situation. I think we need to continue leaning into the hard work of apocalypse, which may, which you may remember means an unraveling or an unveiling. We need to continue unveiling the systems that exist that continue to harm, oppress, and kill people. What I hope to communicate is what I think Jesus was attempting to communicate. That intimacy, that intimacy that depends on the scapegoat is not real intimacy. 
Real intimacy is revealed through the profound work of compassion. And compassion will not let us off the hook of seeing through the eyes of those who are suffering. Compassion will not dismiss us from the work of seeing to it that those who are the most vulnerable must be liberated from the forces that perpetuate their suffering. We know this in our bones because we know what it is to fight for those who are closest to us who are suffering. I sent my brother a text message and said to him, I love you because I do. I believe that my relationship with my brother apart from the misaligned intimacy is possible. I believe that love can exist in our relationship with compassion at its root. I think Jesus knew this would be hard, perhaps too hard for some of our relationships. I think he knew that some relationships may not may struggle to survive the apocalypse and the building of the kingdom of God. But I also think that Jesus knew it was possible. I think he showed us the way of pursuing radical compassion and love. And I think it was the possibility of building right relationships with our neighbors that sparked the movement of Jesus followers over 2000 years ago. I think that that movement is still alive among us. Here are some queries for our time in open worship. In this time, many relationships are being strained. What is being revealed in this for you? What exists that you may have never noticed before? How might this explain something for you about the way these relationships are maintained? How might orienting our relationship building around compassion, even when it involves seeing, owning, and confronting another suffering look like for us? How might that feel different than orienting our relationships around a shared problem or enemy?